Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, there we were worrying that this general election was going to be boring. A few short weeks ago, Theresa May was heading for a landslide victory. Some pollsters had her as much as 20 points ahead in the polls. But now things are very different. One thing's for sure, Labour's had a good general election and the polls have narrowed significantly. However, pollsters disagree on just how much they have narrowed. ICM, Comrades and TNS today have the Tories with double-digit leads that would give Theresa May a commanding majority in the House of Commons and maybe make the last six weeks or so all worthwhile. However, others, such as Servation and YouGov, have the race much closer. In fact, the front page of today's Times produced analysis by YouGov suggesting that we could be heading for a hung parliament. So what's behind these contrasting pictures and who should we believe? Well, today I'm joined to discuss this further by Chris Curtis of YouGov and also regular contributor to Polling Matters, Adam Drummond of Opinion. Gents, welcome to the show. So where do we start? Well, I was going to start with what events had caught our eye on the campaign trail this week. But Chris, uh, given that you're here, I think there's an obvious place to start, which is this, uh, this model that's been produced for The Times yesterday caused something of a kerfuffle, shall we say, on, on social media and elsewhere. Um, so this was for the benefit of people living under a rock. This was a semantic analysis from YouGov, essentially showing that potentially there could be a hung parliament in the general election. But Chris, I guess without putting words into your mouth, why don't you explain to the listeners a bit about what this is all about, where it's come from and what it said. So if we start with talking about how this model was created and put together, it's based on about 50,000 interviews so far during the campaign. Um, and we're also updating it with about 7,000 interviews a day. Um, with our panellists. So you know, much bigger than a, a regular poll. Um, interviews all across the country, all across Great Britain. Um, and then what we use that data for, we use all of that data. And then Doug Rivers, um, who's our Chief Science Officer from the University of Stanford, but also Ben Lauderdale from the LSE here in London, um, have built a massive, complicated and difficult model which accounts for hundreds of factors and allows us to produce national vote share estimates, but also um, look at constituency estimates as well and break that data down amongst the 650 constituencies. A few caveats I'd add at this point. Firstly, this is only looking at data of today. This isn't a prediction of what's going to happen come election day next week. Um, and also, obviously, when you're when these aren't constituency polls we're doing, we're not doing 650 polls in each constituency. We're trying to model the constituencies based on national data, and that means that these aren't going to be exact figures. There's going to be local factors we aren't accounting for. There's going to be tweaks that we in the model that could be making a difference. Um, so yeah, there's lot, there's lots of things to consider. And the final thing that I would say is that the numbers it's pro- pushing out at the end are the central figure, the midpoint, if you like of the Conservative seat share is 310 seats. It's actually ticked up a bit overnight to 311 seats now. Um, but there's a wide range in that, as there always is, because the 95% confidence interval shows that this could be anything from a Conservative, reasonably comfortable Conservative majority, but also the Conservatives actually getting less votes than Labour, uh, less seats than Labour. So there's, there's, there's a wide interval range in these and a wide interval range of possibilities that could still happen. And that's before you even consider the change that could happen over the next week. So let's delve into a little bit of the detail there. So you mentioned one of the things I'm really interested in is this idea of um, the constituency level modelling, because as you pointed out, I think that there isn't enough sample at an individual constituency level to do the old school Lord Ashcroft polls or uh, or other observation. I think in Conrad's may have done some constituency specific constituency polling in the past. Um, I think I've read somewhere that some of the constituency level data is based on maybe 100 respondents or something. So there's clearly some degree of extrapolation from 
what are very small sample sizes at a constituency level to try and work out what that constituency actually would behave like in an election. So without getting into too much of nuts and bolts, how, how is that achieved then? So I'm from Bedford, for example. There'll be some, there'll, somewhere on the website it will say Bedford looks like this. How, how are you doing that? So we're looking at the types of, well, looking at two things, the types of voters that live in Bedford, but also the type of seat that Bedford is. Um, so the, do you have more people in Bedford that voted Conservative or Labour or Liberal Democrat in the last election? Also the EU referendum, was it a Remainy seat or a Levy seat? Do you have people of high or low education? What's your ethnic ethnicity makeup? All of these things are considered and we build a sort of demographic profile of that seat. We look at how these voters that look like that on a national stage are acting um, and then we, we apply that to the seat. So, I mean, it's really going slightly beyond uniform national swing, which is the traditional model we've used um, to, to do seat, seat, seat projections from polling in the UK, um, which, I, in my personal opinion, doesn't work very well now after the EU referendum where the country is divided and now we're seeing lots of different, different moves that mean that, that's, that that model's less good at fully capturing the national picture. Hmm. I mean, some people that have seen this... Um I think it's fair to say, have reacted quite strongly against what's been published, haven't they? Um, I, I guess for some people it may be to, to do with challenging their priors that they had about the way this election was going. I, I certainly uh, see a lot of that from some of the people that are reacting very angrily. But others will suggest that actually, given the error bands are so wide, and I must I'll hold my hands up, this is a slight concern I have, given the error bands are so wide, we've got to be really careful, haven't we, about p- picking these midpoints and almost presenting them as facts, not that you're doing that. But I, what do you make of the fact that these uh, these error bands and seats are quite large? I mean, how how seriously should we, for example, take the projection yesterday as something that could happen next Thursday? So, I, I mean, there's, there's a few points. If I start with your first point about the sort of Twitter stir that this has created, um, I think the main reason this has had such an impact is because, for, actually, more importantly, is showing, a, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure, later, is showing a, the model produces a four-point lead for the Conservatives, which is the narrower than we've been seeing, I think, in any poll so far during this campaign. And actually on that, on that, if that vote share had come out independently and we hadn't done a seat projection, I think it would have caused about the same level of stir because people would then be coming to their own conclusions, even just uni- using the uniform national swing, mm. that suddenly Theresa May could be losing her majority. So actually I think it's that side of it that's potentially more controversial than these seat-by-seat estimates. Um, but again, there's absolutely loads that can change um, between now and Election Day um, for a wide variety of reasons. Mm. I mean, between us recording this and probably this being released this evening, there's going to be a massive national debate that now six of the seven leaders are going to turn up to. Um, this surprise intervention by Jeremy Corbyn, what impact is that going to have? Um, there's lots of voters we've seen that don't like Jeremy Corbyn but say they're going to vote Labour, sort of holding their nose. Are they going to start to swing back between now and Election Day? Um and we're going to be constantly updating this model so we can start to see mm. see those shifts happening. So, Adam, what, what do you make of um, some of this? It's a new sort of innovation uh, from YouGov. Not the first uh, people to produce forecasts, of course. But it's a really difficult challenge, isn't it? Because, I mean, one of the things we noticed in 2015 was that there was always very, very smart people, smarter than me, um, you know, producing these models and yet, ultimately, if the VI, the VI numbers going into them are wrong, they're, they're, they're meaningless, aren't they? So um, what's your perception of this, this model and just generally the, the, the difficulty that, that we have in forecasting elections? 
Um, well, I think uh, given the result and the stir that it's created, it's certainly what you call a bold prediction, um, even if it's not technically speaking a prediction. Um, you, Chris is quite right to highlight the issue that uniform national swing has many, many flaws and it doesn't account for local factors in any way. And it's really just used to give a vague indicator of um, of what sort of seat share we might be looking at with some hypothetical national numbers. So any effort to account for local, you know, <clears throat> more detailed local factors, I applaud. Um, but as we said, um, this is you know, this is quite out, out of line with expectations, so it's quite understandable to see why it's caused such a stir. Um, but again, as Chris said, if that's if this is um, the kind of these are kind of figures that you would get from the national polling that we have anyway, that in a, in a sense is more of a story because if that's what the national polling is telling us, then mm. then it's not really the model that we need to look at; it's actually the polling itself. Mm. Um, the other thing that I always just think about with models, and this is just a general point that I've I've been thinking for the last couple of elections, is that we're very, very data-driven, and I realise that's kind of heresy to say on a polling podcast, but um, Chris is quite right to highlight all the sort of caveats and, and confidence intervals and issues with uncertainty here, and I think one of the things about the way that polls are presented and are reported on and are read and received um, is that there's this image of certainty and there's this impression of you know, complete statistical validity. So I think anything which um, highlights the fact that, you know, yes, these are projections, yes, they use a lot of data, but there is uncertainty there, that needs to be highlighted. Which it isn't really in the Times article, is it? I mean, the type, so I've got the image here, which is, uh, well, as an interesting mm. interpretation of Northern Ireland. But it, it, it could have it could have said two seven. I can't remember the specific figures. It could have said it could have given the range two seventy yeah. to three forty. But mm. it's it, it's tried to it's presented as it's presented as this is what the projection is rather than the midpoint. I suppose maybe that's splitting hairs, but actually it's it, it seems to be showing something much more concrete than maybe it is. I mean, yes, you're right to a certain extent. There is always a trade off between polling and journalism. Um, and, you know, error bars are potentially not sexy enough for the front page of the Times. Um, on, our, on our website, we, we do show the ranges. We also, when you hover over the constituency and you see the vote share per constituency, it doesn't show you the vote share straight off. It shows you these error bars. So you can see, actually, yes, the, we may be showing that the Conservatives are potentially mm. ahead of Labour, but there's all of these possible outcomes that aren't that. Um, the other thing I would add on that, on this certainty point, is although, you know, the... The, the national vote share, there's margin of error, there's other, a few other things that we could be getting wrong. On the constituency level vote estimates, if people are going on the website and looking at those, there are obviously far more things that can be... The, the, the small tweaks to the national model or small differences um, amongst quite niche demographic groups on the national model can make big differences to the constituencies. So the error that the the error bar, the, the uncertainty, the margin of error on those constituency estimates um, is very big. That's the first point I'd make. The second point I would make is that um, you know there's, there might be a local newspaper that comes out against their candidate mm. in, in Hastings, for example, mm. um, and says you know, or there may be a, a local news story or a local MP that's very good at canvassing and getting a very high contact rate in that very one constituency. That can't be picked up in the national model, but could affect the constituency picture. Now, on a national level, these things are all cancelling each other out. But on a constituency level, obviously, we might we might we, we might not be firstly, but also we're not trying to account for that. Mm. 
Um, and the third thing is that there is always going to be quirks even inside those things. So there will be results that are way outside even our error bars in certain constituencies mm. just because you're trying to predict seven, 650 races, not predict, you're trying to model <laughs> and get a snapshot of opinion across 650 races. There's always going that to word be... Predict yes. I want to come back to something Adam sort of uh, alluded to earlier, which is that this idea that you know maybe the more controversial thing is the fact that the gap is four points in this UGOF poll, three or four points, I can't remember what the spread was, rather than actually the model itself. Um, there are wide differences in opinion between the pollsters on what the spread is between Conservative and Labour, and I'll come to you, Adam. So I mentioned in the intro that ICM and Comres continue to show very strong leads for the Conservatives. Both of, the, both of their most recent polls, I think I'm right in saying, had the Conservatives 12 points ahead. ICM produced two polls quite close together that are slightly for different organisations. But they have it very much in double digits. TNS today had a 10-point lead as well, whereas obviously we've talked about YouGov and Servation have the, the gap much, much closer to YouGov as well. What's behind these differences? Because last time, in, by last time in 2015, the pollsters were pretty aligned in what they thought was going on. Now there's this huge disparity. Well, what explains that? Um, so it does all seem to be coming down to whether you're using self-reported turnout rather than demographically modelled turnout. So are you basically getting a sample of people and asking them how likely are you to vote on a 10-point scale and then if you pick a party and you say 10 out of 10, you go through? Or are you saying, OK, we know that in the last election X percent of 18 to 24-year-olds voted, so let's make our share of our sort of voting population in the poll um, the right percentage of how many, uh, of what share they were of the voting population in the last election. So the one of those... So just to get that right... So who's doing what? So so the, the ones oh, that are showing so, the bigger lead. So the larger leads are coming from those which have demographically modelled turnouts rather than self-reported turnout. So our most recent poll had um, a 10-point Tory lead, but the indicators of what we're getting for the next one are that we're going to be leaving the double-digit club and going with the rest of those uh, pollsters. Who and you're are, on more self-reported. Yeah, so, we're, we're going to, so our, our numbers are basically consistent with this group. So we're going to be joining the group of pollsters who have self-reported turnout um, and with similar results. So the question is, those are, there are two ways of trying to correct for the kind of issue that we had in 2015 where the polls had unrepresentative underlying samples. So we had too many overly enthusiastic, labour-leaning younger people, for example. Um, so do you try and correct that at the sampling stage, as I believe you have tried to do, and recruit more people who are less engaged so that you can still use that? So, so self-reported turnout does still work and your turnout model does its job because you've got the correct underlying sample. Or do you accept that we're going to have more engaged people who lean in a particular direction and basically mash and manipulate the, uh, the final sample that you get so that it matches the turnout demographics of the last couple of elections? So... The, the latter approach there is giving us 10 to 12 point Tory leads. The former approach, to the extent that we can say it's being tried, um, self-reported turnout is still is giving us smaller conservative leads because we're getting larger labour figures. So I think one of the... Ultimately, I think the, the approach of trying to get this right at the sampling stage will bear fruit in the longer term, but um, it's... It's tough to say which one is which one is more accurate, but the the ones using demographically modelled turnout certainly seem to be fitting the narrative better. Chris, I want to come in, come to you on a specific point about young voters because there seems to be this um, assumption at the moment that part of what really underlies that all of this is that polls relying on self determined turnout 
are essentially allowing young voters, too many young voters through because young voters are, that are in these polls are saying, oh, well, we're going to show up. And actually, they, mm. we, we, you know, the Comreses and the ICMs, you know, they, they think, well, that's not really going to happen. So what, what do you find? Do you find um, that you know, young voters are maybe saying they're more likely to show up than we'd expect? I mean, do you think there's, is, is there evidence behind that claim? So we've actually now, I mean, our polling, which we do um, for the Times and the Sunday Times uses the method that Adam's talking about. Our turnout, our model online actually uses a, a demographic turnout model and we're now coming to the same results. I'll comment on that in a minute. I don't think it's actually correct, this assumption, that by not using a demographic turnout weighting system that Adam described, you are have, getting too many young voters. Through. I don't think that's correct because in our data, that's not what we're seeing. We actually have a reasonably steep gradient um, between the sort of, the, 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 the turnout that the model predicts amongst the different age groups. So in our most recent poll for the Sunday Times, about 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds, the model suggests will vote, as opposed to about 75% of um, 65 pluses. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Nobody necessarily has exact numbers on this. Um, uh, maybe we'd feel a bit more comfortable if it was 45 or 80. Maybe we'd feel a bit more comfortable if it was 60 and 70. Um, uh but that uh, the the numbers that we're getting so about about fifty to about seventy five is not too far away from the um, the, the British election studies big face to face study survey they did after last election where they were knocking on doors which mm. in theory should be a little bit better at this stuff asking people how they actually voted and then they went and they validated that afterwards so they actually went through the the they, they went up and down the country into council offices and they looked at whether the people they'd asked had actually voted. Um, and, and our, our turnout numbers, without having to apply this demographic turnout filter, are not, now, no longer too far away from that. Um, but yeah, it, it does come down to the gradient of the line. And it also comes down to whether you're trying to get this right at the earlier stages in the poll or whether you're trying to force it to be correct. But it sounds like what you're saying is actually a bit simplistic for people to say, well, this all comes down to whether young voters show yeah, up or not. I think yeah. that, that, is, that is too simplistic. Um, it is simplistic, but on the other hand, we still talk about shy toys when actually that hasn't been a valid explanation for polling ever since about 1992. I want to come on to a, a, another question from one of our listeners. And Tony, I hope I pronounced your surname right. I'm almost certain not to, so do, do uh, bear with me. But Tony uh, Vitovsky um, asks a question. He's very complimentary of the podcast, but I'm not going to read out praise. Uh, no, no, do. On, do you want me to read it out? On yeah. the show, so I'm going to ask Adam to. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> He asks an interesting question about the difference between um, the, the horse race, so the headline voting attention figures, and some of the uh, sort of more fundamentals, as Peter Kellner once called them, or internals, as other people call them, like the, su the supplementary questions that get asked. So just to explain what I mean by that. So one of your polls uh, recently had a, a five-point uh, lead for the Conservatives, and it was the only one I could find recently that had the best best Prime Minister question as well. I may have just been where I was looking. But, it's, but it had uh, Conservatives five points ahead on voting intention, but it had Theresa May 17 points ahead over Jeremy Corbyn on who would make the best Prime Minister. Now, that's not the only uh, supplementary question that gets asked. There's all sorts of ones about the economy, about who's best to negotiate Brexit, which we'll come on to, etc., etc., etc. So uh, I guess, I think I understand Tony's question correctly he's asking well what explains that difference because presumably you know the big gap may has over corbyn on best pm is indicative of something else going on that maybe isn't being reflected in voting intention figures i mean what would you say to tony on that so i mean if we go if we, go, if we jump back to the eu referendum which in my opinion is the best example of this fundamentals not matching up to the 
top line numbers. Obviously, we didn't have prime ministers then. But in my opinion, the, the best indicator of the fundamental in the EU referendum campaign is which result do you think is going to make you personally better off economically? Because that, based on most political science, should be the biggest driver of this. And by quite some distance, more people said they were going to be worse off because of leaving than better off if we leave the EU. So why is it that you've got that and yet you've got people in the same poll saying they were going to vote to remain? And the, the, what we looked into this and what we found is those that said they were better off if we leave the EU were voting to leave. Those that said they were worse off were going to vote remain. And there was also this big chunk of people that said no difference. And those no difference people overwhelmingly overwhelmingly vote for leave and that's what won them the referendum mm. uh, people seem to go right that's it economics is no longer important in politics because of that but it's actually that it's people that thought the referendum was going to make no difference to them economically and that's why so it, it wasn't that the re- economics didn't matter in the EU referendum it was lots of people just didn't think it mattered to them mm. um, in, in this obviously the, the best fundamental is the one you described which is best prime minister and again we've seen somewhere around 45% who think Theresa May will make the best prime minister most of them are voting Conservative. About 25% think Jeremy Corbyn would make the best Prime Minister. Most of them are voting Labour. Then there's also 30% who say don't know. Uh, we don't, we actually, because of the way we phrase the question, we do, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn don't know. We don't give them a neither option, which, you know, they go into don't know anyway. It doesn't, doesn't actually make too much difference. Those don't knows, overwhelmingly, uh, are by quite some distance breaking for Labour. Whilst at the same time, there are quite a few people who think Theresa May would make the best Prime Minister who are still not voting Conservative. And there's a wide variety of reasons why this would be the case. I mean, there are lots of those don't knows of people that voted Labour at the last election, maybe a Labour loyalist and maybe holding their noses and saying they're going to vote for Labour anyway, despite the fact that they don't, they're not sure who might make the best prime minister. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there's this, there's this, there seems to be this belief developing that if the fundamentals show one thing, we need to believe them more than the headline polling numbers. Firstly, I think it's bizarre that you would use polling to try and disprove polling. That seems like an odd concept <laughs> to me. But also there are a wide variety of reasons why these things are complicated and difficult and a bit messy. And to try and simplify it down, I think, can sometimes, can sometimes uh, you know, lead you to, to worse results rather than better ones. Let's, uh, for the last sort of 10 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes, let's talk about um, the campaign more generally. So we talked about you know, the, the projections and what, what's behind some of the underlying poll numbers. But, I mean, what... what what do the, what does do these uh, projections and poll numbers do to the campaign, Adam? Because it feels like you know Theresa May was a shoe in two or three weeks ago. Now the polls have narrowed. Obviously, a disagreement over how much they've narrowed and so on. But clearly, she's under a lot of pressure, isn't she? I think the main point is one that Chris alluded to just a minute ago, which is that there's a significant number of Labour-leaning, centre-left-leaning people who say they are going to vote Labour, but who don't want to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister. So when you have polling showing and <clears throat> various models, um, so apart from the the YouGov one, showing that you know there's going to be a massive Conservative majority, it's very easy for, or it's or it's an easier choice than it necessarily might be for the people in that situation to hold their noses, as Chris said, and go and vote Labour because you're voting for your local MP who you might quite like. You're voting for you know a strong Labour share and to avoid Labour being completely wiped out in a sort of 1931 style electoral cataclysm. Um, but once you start seeing polls showing that actually this may be quite close and actually your vote for a local MP, a lo- you know, local Labour candidate, a local Labour MP, might help to make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister, 
what does that do to the psychology of that person? Mm. What does that do to their propensity to actually turn out and vote? Um, adds, adds weight to this coalition of chaos line that seemed really ridiculous at the start of the well, campaign. Well, precisely, it? which which actually, I mean, people you know laughed at Theresa May's tweet a couple of weeks ago when she said that oh, we're only six or seven seat losses away from Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister, which is a bit ridiculous on the face of it, um, especially because the idea of them losing seats was uh, quite absurd at the time. But all of these you know, narrowing numbers and projections and things like that actually make that argument for her. So while Theresa May and the Tories have had a terrible week or so since their manifesto issues, actually this has been making their case in a bizarre way. I want to come on to our, the latest in our series of Polling Matters Opinion surveys. Um, there's a question that we've been tracking since um, April. So we've, this, we've got the third round of this data this time, which is essentially who, who voters think is best to um, negotiate Brexit. Now, at the start of the campaign, I was sort of convinced that this was the fundamental question because, you know, we were about to head into Brexit negotiations. Who was it that people wanted to send to the negotiating table was going to be a really, really important question. That's probably been challenged to be, I'll hold my hands up, that's probably been challenged during this campaign when we look at the subject matter that people have been talking about in the manifestos and in some of the issues around the NHS and the hospital um, and school story as well. So maybe it's not quite the all-encompassing um, figure that I once thought. But nevertheless, the trend here is really interesting. So just to remind people, back in April, 51% said they would prefer May to negotiate Brexit, 13% said Corbyn, 14 neither, 22 don't know. But it's a 51 versus 13 May versus Corbyn. That narrowed slightly in the poll we produced uh, last weekend, but I won't read that out as well. But what we have now, having produced it for a third weekend, um, is Theresa May is preferred by 43%, so that's down eight points. Jeremy Corbyn is preferred to negotiate Brexit by 26%, which is doubled, it's up 13 from back in April. Uh, 13% uh, neither, 19% don't know. So the gap there has gone from what we're looking at, 30 uh, 38 down to uh, 17. That's right, yep. 30, a 38 point gap to a 17 point gap. Theresa May still preferred, Chris, um, but this, this, this question and the trend here does, I guess, reflect the wider campaign, doesn't it? Corbyn's improved, May's uh, mm. fell back a bit, she's still ahead, but. I think you, you've alluded to everything there. Firstly, she's gone down, and secondly, this question's become less in less of the fundamental question of the selection campaign. I am constantly, constantly surprised at sort of how this election campaign has played out for the Conservatives. They haven't been able to stick to their core messaging. They've been constantly knocked off of that. It's not. All, it's now no longer all about who you trust most to negotiate Brexit. Um, and yes, uh, the Jeremy Corbyn's numbers are going back up. I don't know if that's people sort of mostly, I don't know if that's mostly made up by people siloing sort of back into their traditional... Um, sort of giving more partisan answers. Well, there's like. two numbers I want to bring up on that point, actually. So back in April, 44% of Labour voters preferred Corbyn to negotiate Brexit over May. Now it's 63% of Labour voters. So there's definitely something in... Now, obviously, we know the Labour vote share has also grown, but there's definitely something in Labour voters getting behind their man, as it were. You get an election campaign, you get excited and a bit more partisan. Sure. But there's another finding, which I thought was actually really interesting. Remain voters in April preferred Theresa May to negotiate Brexit over Corbyn by 20 points. They now prefer Corbyn to negotiate Brexit over May by 11. And that's really interesting when you consider Corbyn's position on Brexit. And, I, and I, maybe Remainers aren't thinking as one and as, as Remain, the Remain party on this, Adam, right? But, mm. I mean, clearly there's something in how Corbyn's done in this campaign that has 
consolidated many of those people that voted Remain that aren't necessarily happy with the Brexiteers at the head of the Conservative Party. Now they now they have a champion, even no, if he's not necessarily going to stop Brexit itself. No, I think Chris is exactly right. There's an element of siloing and people becoming more partisan as an election campaign comes along. Because, like you said, it's not the Remain party. Remain voters are mainly made up of Labour voters, but some Tories and, and most of the Lib Dems. So they're naturally kind of siloing back to their traditional sort of loyalties and are being more, you would say, sort of off, you know, put off by May being, you know, the Conservative leader in an election campaign than necessarily attracted to Corbyn, whose position on Brexit is, should we say, constructively ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that um, got mentioned in, in you know, vague bits of reporting um, is fox hunting, which is a bizarrely sort of non-issue to an extent, but it's one that seems to sort of really animate uh, lots of Labour-leaning people um, and and maybe those who may have been leaning towards the I think it's a brand thing, isn't it? I think it's the exactly. type of people it's, that like yeah. fox hunting turn other people off. Yeah, and which which is bizarre because when it when it came out, you wouldn't think of that as being a big issue. I mean, apologies to those people who are really animated by that issue, but you wouldn't think of that as being okay. This is kind of a defining thing, mm-hmm. but it does seem to have turned off. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, sort of a lot of uh, Labour people who may may not you know, like the Conservatives so much, but they were fans of Theresa May, and that may have put them off for a bit. We released we released a piece on the manifestos, and we just simply asked people with an open text box. What do you think is in the Conservative manifesto? What do you think is in the Labour manifesto? Two things surprised me from that. Um, the first was that they seem to remember all of the positive things from the Labour manifesto and all of the negative things from the Conservative manifesto. But the other one was just how me- many people remembered fox hunting, which we just always assumed was just this non-issue and didn't matter. Mm. And, but yeah, it just seems to just seems to be one of those things that's cut through in this campaign, despite expectations. There's a question I want to finish on from the from our Polling Matters opinion survey this week. Which is around expectations. You know, what do people think is going to happen? And what we asked was, regardless of how you intend to vote personally, who do you expect to be prime minister following the general election on June the 8th? And uh, we, we asked, we gave people the option of Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, or don't know. Sorry, um, Paul Nuttall, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, Nicola Sturgeon and Tim Farron. We didn't put you in there. 61% said they expect Theresa May to be prime minister. 18% said Jeremy Corbyn. 21% said they didn't know. So a clear clear overwhelming majority expect Theresa May to remain Prime Minister after the general election. What does this tell us? I mean, does it tell us anything? I mean, there's clearly an expectation there. Does it matter? There's there's some people um, who have argued that this sort of wisdom of the crowds question is quite often a good indicator of what might happen in the election. It didn't work too well in the EU referendum, but it's been a general good indicator for the last few campaigns. I'm less convinced that it will be a good indicator in this election purely because the change in voting intention has been so rapid to go from, I mean, even even the more conservative conservative, conservative bolsters in, in, in all senses who have shown a smaller swing away from the Conservatives have still got, seen it going from a 20-point Conservative lead to a 12-point. So I think the reason that is so dramatically high with 61% saying Theresa May is because this has happened so quickly and maybe that, to the extent that polling does cut through to the public, there's a lag mm. in the speed that it does so. If it does so over the next week, and people start to now see this not as a the you know measuring how big the conservative landslide is going to be, but instead actually this race could be close. What impact could that have? Um, we don't really know because mm. uh, in 2010 we saw the sort of Lib Dem surge and Clegg mania and that sort of then swung back as towards election day. But we don't have anywhere near enough data available on on 
on how yeah. people react to expectations. I suppose, Adam, there's, there's two ways of interpreting these numbers, really, isn't there? One is that there's, there's, there's something underlying here that is, is, is the VI numbers could be missing, maybe, around the fact that you know, people expect Theresa May to win. I guess the other is that actually that there's, there could be a complacency of the Conservative vote mm. um, and, and maybe even it could be having an impact on the Labour vote too. Yeah, I think it's a bit... It's a it's partly to do with um, and again apologies to those who are diehard fans of Jeremy Corbyn, but there's an there's an extent to which it's it's the unimaginable outcome because it's it seems so nailed on and so certain a bit like how certain it was that Hillary Clinton not Donald Trump will become a U.S. president. It seems so sort of certain and guaranteed that the conversation, like Chris said, has been about how big the Conservatives' landslide is going to be rather than whether it's going to happen. So the other thing is that. When this poll was done, um, was before a certain model made the Times front page a couple of days ago. Um, as the conversation, you know, the national conversation, which uh, yeah, as Chris mentioned, the the move in opinion polls has been quite rapid. So the the tone of, of the coverage and the conversation hasn't necessarily caught up to that. So if the conversation becomes a lot more about oh my God, maybe the Tories actually aren't going to completely walk this. Maybe actually Corbyn has a chance, especially if he turns in a good performance in the debate, which is, has probably already happened by the time anybody listens to this. Um, so that tenor of conversation may change how people's, uh, people perceive uh, or expect uh, pe- what people's expectations of the result are. But equally, as we were saying earlier, that may then affect voting intention because if a big chunk of Labour voters are saying they're going to vote Labour because they're fairly sure that it, all they're doing is helping the Labour Party survive to fight another day rather than actually make Jeremy Corbyn Prime Minister that may then end up turning them off. And it, it's... Um, it could be that some of those people disliked Jeremy Corbyn not because they didn't want him to be Prime Minister from an ideological perspective, mm. but because they thought he was a loser. And therefore, actually, if they suddenly see the potential of him winning, they're not just going to suddenly shift against him. Actually, this is good news for them. Well, I mean, the, the, the counter-evidence to that, though, is that wasn't that one of the main objections against Ed Miliband back before uh, 2015? And actually, there's, there's evidence that one of the reasons why Labour underperformed in that election was because it seemed like people who were leaning towards Labour, actually their vote might make Ed Miliband Prime Minister, and even a man they didn't necessarily want to be Prime Minister, and that turned them off him. So, final word, we're running out of time, but from both of you then, let's talk Let's talk about Theresa May, mm-hmm. uh, just a couple, uh, minute each or thereabouts. Um what does Theresa May have to do then in the last week to sort of regain the regain the momentum? Pardon the pun uh, in the in the general election campaign, Chris. I mean, what, what if you're advising the Prime Minister? What, what would you be saying that she needs to do? So there is a large chunk of the Labour vote at the moment who are holding their noses and voting for Labour, despite the fact that they don't really like Jeremy Corbyn. Theresa May needs to try and make the smell so bad over the next eight days that they can no longer hold their noses anymore and they have to move to another party. I think it basically has to turn into a, if I was advising her, a negative campaign against Jeremy Corbyn, you know, potentially other people around him that are quite unpopular amongst the public. I'm thinking Diane Abbott, potentially John McDonnell as well, talking about trying to just message discipline completely. You cannot negotiate Brexit. You are weak. You have had these links to terrorism. And I think if every word that comes out of your mouth is a negative word about mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn, that's probably the best play that she has now. Um, although, you know, I realise that's probably not great for democracy, is it? <laughs> Adam, final word to you. I mean, I, 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 do you agree with some of that? And also, um, could it work? Might, might it not work? Well, yeah, two things. One of which is um, to sort of agree with Chris. Um, the thing that we're not seeing in national pictures is how much of the sort of, you know, the really targeted social media campaign in the marginals where people like Jim Messina and the whole sort of, you know, CCHQ data team etc have got their ruthlessly targeted uh, you know Facebook ads and 
I don't know if anybody's seen, but you can you can find it on YouTube and it gets it's above most of the videos that or maybe I'm in a particularly sort of marginal place where I'm getting this targeted at me, but um videos which just feature all of Jeremy Corbyn's speeches about, you know, the IRA, Hamas, anti terror legislation, the police, all of these things. Um so that campaign is basically happening. It's just mm. it's happening in a really targeted, under the radar way, really focused on marginal seats, which means that our focus on national vote shares yeah, Labour may may well end up with a national vote share that's quite a bit larger than in 2015 and lose seats because of the way this campaign is so targeted. Um, as far as what advice I'd give to Theresa May, um, just Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Um, there's a reason why, you know, you said, Kieran, that we're you know, tracking this question, who do you think would be best to negotiate Brexit? The reason why the Tories are in the mid-40s to begin with is not all because of um, how badly Labour were doing before the campaign started, it's because they've absorbed half of the UKIP vote. Mm. Um, and just to sort of plug a bit of work that we've, uh, we've done ourselves. Go ahead. Indeed, so we have a report that's, uh, that's come out today where um, uh, we're calling it uh, Reuniting the Right or Realignment on the Right. I should know the name of my own report. Um, if you're going to plug it, you really <laughs> should know the name of it, Adam. But uh, it's available on the uh, Opinion website. Um, but basically the whole thesis of that is what we've seen in polling, which is that so much of the sort of the really uh, pro-Brexit, uh, pro-Leave, um, UKIP-leaning uh, crowd has moved over en masse to the Tories um, and have really uh, really uh, strongly positive views of Theresa May. So as well as, uh, you know, as good an election campaign as Jeremy Corbyn and Labour seem to be having, they're not, it's really hard to see them getting up to the sort of four, you know, early mm. 40% um, firewall which Theresa May has built up by uniting the right more generally. So she needs to make sure that those people turn out and in big numbers, and she needs to do that by focusing on Brexit and immigration. Well, we've heard a lot about blue walls in the last year, so let's see whether this one holds up. Um, but Adam Drummond and <laughs> Chris Curtis, thanks very much for your time. And that is all we've got time for for this week's Political Betting and Polling Matters podcast. Certainly lots to chew over in the as we approach the final week of the general election campaign. Campaign. If you enjoy the show and like what you hear, please do share us on social media. It's one of the main ways we get our name out there. If you really like what you hear, then do like our Facebook page. Give us a nice comment or rating on iTunes or other podcast apps. I don't understand the algorithms. That seems to be the, the, the bane of my life at the moment with various models and algorithms going on. But it does help get the podcast out there and we really appreciate it. But in the meantime, uh, stay tuned for our final episode before the general election next week. And thanks for listening. <laughs>